Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Again, welcome to Mercy Hill. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to welcome you again. Hey, listen, they're going to plug this at the end of service, but I want to go ahead and plug it now. Uh, If you're visiting with us today or you've been visiting with us for the last uh, weeks or months or so, uh, and you haven't gotten connected or plugged in yet, we're having a connect lunch right after church, just a chance for people to get to know a little bit more about Mercy Hill uh, and what we do here. And it's going to be right out here in the lobby. It's going to be a free lunch. So if you've never been to a connect lunch and you want to learn a little bit more about the church, please stick around after service and join us for that. We would love to have you guys uh, with us this afternoon. So we are continuing our series in Micah today. Uh, we're going to be in Micah chapter 6. So if you have a copy uh, of your, your Bible or your device, if you want to start making your way to Micah chapter 6, uh, please feel free to do that. We're starting to wrap up Micah, right? We got two chapters left. We got chapter six today, and then Brandon's going to wrap up the series next week. And, and I know it's been just awesome to walk through Micah these last few weeks. It's been an awesome series. If you guys have missed any of those and you don't know, you can always go back and watch those on Facebook. Or um, if you're a podcaster, there's a Mercy Hill podcast, and you can listen to those sermons in your car. So if you ever miss one, feel free to catch up so you can stay on track to where we are at. <clears throat> So a confession for you today, um, I don't got any like witty anecdotes or, or cool stories or jokes or anything like that today. I just have the text, and I, I think that's enough for us today, and I hope that's okay with you guys. Um, so Micah chapter 6, let me set the context for us a little bit. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, Micah, one of the minor prophets, um, minor because just his, his book is shorter than some of the other prophets, right? Not minor in what he is saying. One of the minor prophets... Uh, around 700 years or so before Jesus came in the kingdom of Judah. So at this point, the kingdom of Israel split into two, right? There was a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom at this point has been destroyed by the Assyrians. And now the southern kingdom is in danger as well. Not just danger from the outside, but danger from the inside because the people have been rebelling against God. And that's what Micah has been warning them about so far. And we've seen in the first few chapters, Micah really taking the people to task for their idolatry, for the corrupt leaders and the false prophets, and really just ignoring God completely. But last week, we saw a little bit of a shift in the book, and we saw a glimmer of hope uh, that Brandon preached last week about the promise of the unexpected good shepherd who was going to come and save his people. But as we get to chapter 6 today, the truth of the matter is that the good shepherd hasn't come yet, and God still has an issue with his people. And that brings us to chapter 6 in the courtroom of God. So Micah chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 1. Now listen to what the Lord is saying. Rise, plead your case before the mountains. And let the hills hear your complaint. Listen to the Lord's lawsuit, you mountains and enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, and he will argue it against Israel. My people, what have I done to you, or how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from that place of slavery. I sent Moses and Aaron and Miriam ahead of you. My people, 
Remember what King Balak of Moab proposed. What Balaam, son of Beor, answered him and what happened from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal so that you may acknowledge the Lord's righteous acts. So Micah chapter 6 begins with kind of setting this courtroom scene for us. We have God who is the plaintiff, uh, but also the judge, so that doesn't bode well for the defense. And then we have Micah who's kind of acting as the voice for the plaintiff, maybe like a prosecuting attorney type figure. And we have the defendants, God's people, Israel. And then we have witnesses. It's kind of interesting, the witnesses that God calls. He, in fact, calls creation itself as a witness. He calls the mountains and the hills and the very foundations of the earth to be his witness. Why? Because they have been a witness to God from the very beginning. Before man ever walked the earth, Creation was a witness to God and his power and glory. They have seen it all. They've seen that God has a case against his people. So the prosecution begins their case in verse 3. But they take an interesting tactic, one that you wouldn't see in most court cases. They don't begin by laying out a list of grievances or faults against the defense. Now, he begins by asking a question and kind of really punting the ball to the defense. But he asks a question first. He asks, what? What have I done to you for you to act this way? What have I done that is so bad that has led us to this place? He wants to know how he has burdened them. Why are they so weary? Has he not been good to them? Has he not blessed them? And he lays out just a few ways that he blessed them. Now, if he wanted to, he could lay out countless ways that he blessed them, but it would take quite a long time to go through that list. So he gives a small list about how he rescued them from slavery in Egypt, how he raised up people to lead them, how he blessed them when they entered the promised land, all while their enemy Balak was trying to curse them. Just a small list the amazing blessings that God poured out for his people. Why? So they might know that there's a loving, caring, righteous, and just God on their side. This is how the prosecution begins their case. Not with accusations, but just with a question of how did we end up here after all I've done for you? In verse 6, we get a response from the defense. Um, Probably not the best response, not one you might expect. So let's look at verse 6 and 7. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? Uh, That's quite quite a response uh, to God. Really, they're not even giving a defense. They're not defending themselves. They don't give any justification for their behavior. They don't give any evidence to support them. They don't even show any remorse. Just a, hey, let's just, let's work out a plea deal, but kind of sarcastically. It's like, well, fine, God, just tell us what you want. What, What can we do to make this case go away? What's going to make you happy? What should we bring to you when we come to worship you? 
Is it, is it more burnt offerings, God? You seem to really like those burnt offerings, especially those really valuable, like, one-year-old calves that we have. You, would that be good if we brought some of those for you? No? Like, I, I see you're a hard man to please. How about if we bring a 1,000 rams, not just a 1,000 rams, how about a 1,000 rams and streams of oil? Would that be enough of a sacrifice for you? No? Okay, here, here then. This has got to be enough, and this is my final offer, God. How about my firstborn? Would that be enough? If I brought my firstborn as a sacrifice for you, would that cover these sins of ours? What do you say to that, God? You would love those sacrifices, right? It's amazing how far uh, the people of God have strayed. don't even grasp the fact that God doesn't need anything from them. And they have taken a system which was meant to help them worship God, to show love and devotion and sacrifice, a system that was meant to help share in the covenant that God had made with them, and they have perverted it. And they think so little of the creator of the universe that he can be placated with the very things that he created. And they have missed the whole point. God doesn't need anything from them. He wants a relationship with them, but he doesn't need anything from them. And it's not about sacrifices. It's about their hearts. But since they seem to be so hard-hearted, he's going to lay it out for them one more time and tell the people what he really requires. Look at that in verse 8. He says, Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. So here we get Micah speaking in his, his own voice, laying it out for the people, saying, he has shown you, he has shown you what is required. It's not sacrifices. He has shown you over and over and over again. But here, one more time, this is what it is. Well, we can say, well, how has he shown them? How has God shown his people? Again, we can go back to the very act of creation. As Paul says in Romans, for since the creation of the world, his invis- invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. We can see God through what has been made and see what is required through what has been made. But if that's not clear enough, we get stories of how God destroyed wickedness. We get Stories of the the covenants that he made with Noah and Abraham and David and the promises that he made for us and what is required. We get the miracles and the prophets and the kings who have received word from the Lord. And Micah's saying, he's shown you over and over again. But one more time, in this courtroom, this is what the Lord requires. And Micah lays out three things, three requirements that the Lord wants. And the first thing we see, he says, to act justly. To act justly. Some translations might say, to do justice. Well, how does one do justice? Well, first we need to understand uh, the word that Micah is using here. This isn't the type of justice that we see Judge Judy dealing out on TV. And this word For justice here occurs over 400 times in the Old Testament and is often tied directly to God's character. God doesn't just administer justice, God is just. 
So I think a better way of understanding this verse would be to say, to do what is right according to God. Do what is right according to God is to do justice. Not according to your heart, not according to your parents, not according to your friends, not according to even your king, Israel, but according to God. This should permeate everything, family, relationships, society, leadership. But this is not what's been taking place in Israel and Judah. Greed, a lust for power, oppression of the weak, and leaders who all but ignore the righteousness of God. God did not want countless sacrifices from his people, especially a people with hard hearts. He wanted people with hearts after him who did the right thing. So the first thing is to, to do justice. And the second thing we see laid out here is to love faithfulness, or some translations say to love kindness. Even some, and I, I like better say, to love mercy, to love mercy. And this is an, another powerful Hebrew word that is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament, and it's hard to get a perfect translation. That's why so many Bibles translate it different ways. But I think if we can wrap up all of those three translations I said into one, that would kind of get us close. It would be to describe it as a, a faithful love that is filled with mercy and compassion. A faithful love that is filled with mercy and compassion. Again, this is often the same word that is used when talking about God's side of the covenants that he makes with his people. His love for us and his mercy and compassion. Like justice, though, this love and mercy is part of God's character. It's part of who he is, and he expects his people to act the same. Love and mercy were surely lacking in this kingdom because these people were just looking out for themselves. So we're to act justly, to love mercy. And then the third thing, the third requirement is the people are to walk humbly with God. And this very, mel, very, way, very well may be the most important one of the three. We cannot hope to do what is right or love mercy if we are a people filled with pride. Uh, Bill Curtis is a pastor. He said it this way, this quote for you. He says, we must accept this simple truth, but we will never act justly or love faithfulness if we are not walking humbly with God. Pride says life is about me, and the people around me are simply there to make my life better. The people of Israel and Judah had become filled with pride, and as a result, they had reduced their covenant relationship with God to a spiritual to-do list, which, frankly, they would just as soon have done without. Humility, however, says this, I believe God, so I obey God. Pride leads to destruction. Destruction in relationships and destruction in our society and culture. Humbleness, first and foremost, to God and then to our neighbors and the people around us leads to a people and a culture that thrives. That's how God designed us to be. So those are the requirements. That's what God lays out for this people. That is what is required. But the trial is not over. It's time for God to to render a verdict. So let's pick up the rest of the text in chapter 6, starting in verse 9. The voice of the Lord calls out to the city, and it is wise to fear your name. Pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. 
Are there still the treasures of wickedness and the accursed short measure in the house of the wicked? Can I excuse wicked scales or bags of deceptive weights? For the wealthy of the city are full of violence, and its residents speak lies. The tongues in their mouth are deceitful. As a result, I have begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. You will eat but not be satisfied, for there will be a hunger within you. You will acquire what you acquire you cannot save, and what you do save I will give to the sword. You will sow but not reap. You will press olives but not anoint yourself with oil. You will tread grapes but not drink the wine. The statues of Omri and all the practices of Ahab, Ahab's house have been observed, and you have followed their policies. Therefore, I make you a desolate place, and the city's, re- the city's residents an object of contempt. You will bear the scorn of my people. So we get the verdict. They're guilty. There's no need for deliberation. I mean, there wasn't really even a defense. The witnesses don't even need to testify. God cannot turn a blind eye to wickedness and injustice. It goes against his very character. And these people, their homes are filled with the riches gathered by their evil deeds. They try to justify themselves by tampering with the scales. They are violent, deceitful, and people who have strayed too far from God. They worship idols and follow the lead of evil rulers like Ahab. Therefore, God is turning them over to destruction. All they will do will be in vain. The simple act of eating will no longer satisfy. The peaceful days that are to come in the promised good shepherd have not yet arrived. And until they do, these people will face judgment. So what, what do we take then from this text? I, I think one of the big ideas here is that in the midst of a broken world, just like how it was broken all those thousands of years ago, in the midst of a broken world, God still requires his people to demonstrate humility, to act justly, and to be merciful. So then how are we in 2023 to apply this text from thousands of years ago? Remember, we talk about interpreting the Bible. The Bible is not written to us, right? This was written to the people in Judah, but it is written for us. So if we look at the context that Michael is writing in, a corrupt people with corrupt leaders, selfishness, idolatry running rampant, we can draw some cultural comparisons to what we experience today. We see that it's not that far off to the world that we live in. So we have a similar context, but what about God's requirements? Are those our requirements? Are they meant for us? Well, we know that God does not change. These requirements come directly from God's character. So the requirements haven't changed either, so then they can also be applied to us. So let's do that. Let's take these three requirements and apply them to our lives. The first one to act justly, to act justly. For us to act justly, we must do what is right in our relationships with God and with our neighbors. We must do what is right in our relationship with God and with our neighbors. Well, then how do we do that? Well, good news, just like 
Israel, he has shown us. God has written it in our hearts first and foremost. Before the law even existed, before there was 10 commandments, before Jesus, before any of it, God wrote it in our hearts, what is right and wrong and what he requires. We look at the stories in Genesis and Genesis chapter four, if you look at the story of Cain, what did God tell Cain? He said, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? If you act justly, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. What did Cain end up doing? Murdered Abel. He murdered his brother. And then he lied about it to God. Well, why did he lie about it? Right? There was no thou shalt not murder at this time. He lied about it because he knew what was right and what was wrong. He knew what God required. Just like deep down, we know what God requires because he wrote it on our hearts. But we also know because he wrote it somewhere else too. He wrote it in a book that we have access to every second of every day here in America. You carry it around in your pockets, on your phone. You have it in print. We have a whole book that points us to God and points us to what is right. But not just that, he also sent us an example. He sent us Jesus to show us what right looks like. And then Jesus, trying to help us out, he simplified the whole thing for us. He took the 10 that we got from Moses and the three that we got from Micah, and he whittled it down to two. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And second, to love your neighbor as yourself. That is to act justly. So let's look at the first one. How do we love God? Now, we could come up as a church, we could come up with a list uh, of 10 ways to, to love God better in 2023. Uh, we come up with all kinds of self-help stuff, but like Jesus, I want to try to keep it simple. When you love someone or you love something, it requires your time. If you love someone or love something, it requires your time. The church, the first thing you have to do to act justly before God is to stop moving God down on your list of priorities. His place is at the top always and forever. And there's some really scary verses in the New Testament, in words from Jesus that talk about people who move God down on that priority list. Jesus in Matthew says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Paul in 2 Corinthians speaks about those who disguise themselves as followers of Christ, saying that their end will correspond to their deeds. Titus says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. James tells us that faith without works is dead. But I would add to that that faith without a relationship is dead. Because what do you have faith in if you don't have a relationship with God? What are you putting your faith in? You don't even know God. How can you put your faith in him? So how do you love God? You do what is right in your relationship with him. You spend time with him. You make him your number one priority. Not out of obligation, not out of a box to check, but out of love because he loved you. And this fact can and will require you to say no to a lot of other things in your life. To put God first is going to require you to say no to a lot of things in your life. 
Really, take, take a quick self-assessment right here, right now. Where is God on your list of priorities? I know I struggle every day to make, make sure that he's number one. And if coming to church on Sunday at 1030 in the morning is the only time that God gets in your week, I think that would say a lot about your priorities. To act justly begins with loving God, but also loving our neighbors. But we also love our neighbors by embracing the second requirement that Micah gave us, to love mercy. So we love our neighbors by embracing the fact that we need to love mercy. We love mercy by embracing the loving kindness that God poured out for us and by sharing it with our neighbors. Like I said, as much as things have changed since the days of Micah, much has stayed the same, right? We're still a people marked by greed, ruthlessness, cruelty, and humanity. It's all around us all the time. And not just in the world. It's in the church. I've heard some of the cruelest things come from people inside the church. And I'm not just talking about the big C universal church. I'm talking about our church. We talk a big game about mercy and love and kindness and compassion until it is an inconvenience for us. But the church is supposed to be a hospital where those who are weak and broken and lost can come for love and treatment. And again, I'm not talking about the church as this building. I'm talking about you. You are the church. You are the hospital. You are the staff. Not Brandon, not me, not this building. It's you. It's us together. God poured out his loving kindness on us, on you, yes, for your salvation, but also so that you would pour it out on those around you. From our neighbors to the nations, that's like what we like to say here at Mercy Hill. So acting justly and loving mercy requires you to get out of your comfort zone and to love your neighbors. And loving our neighbors is similar to loving God. And first and foremost, it, it takes time. Again, you can't love something that you don't give time to. You can't love someone if you don't spend time with them. So you got to give people time. And it also takes prayer. Loving your neighbor takes prayer. Asking God to move in people's lives. If your prayer life is only ever about your needs, you're doing it wrong. And then maybe the hardest part, is it takes grace. People are difficult. I'm sure some of you think I'm difficult. I'm sure some of you look around this room and say, man, that person's difficult. I don't like talking to them. Um, we're all sinners. We're all broken. And sometimes we rub people the wrong way. I get it. But he has literally shown us Christ came and took on flesh to bring the loving kindness of God to people, regardless of their gender, their race, their ethnicity, or even their personality. We got to get over these things. We are tasked to do the same thing. And sometimes God puts those difficult people in your life, not so he can work on them, but so he can work on you. We want to be a church we want to be a people that loves mercy, that loves kindness. We want to do that on mission together, right? That's the way we have missional communities. We don't call them small groups or life groups. 
right? We want you to do life together. We want you to gather together and have a family here, but we want you to do it with an outward focus, knowing that there's people all around you in your neighborhoods and in this state and your communities in the world that need Jesus. That's how we love mercy. That's how we act justly. Ready to share the loving kindness of God to the people around us. So that's how we act justly. It's how we love mercy. And then we need to walk humbly. We must understand that our place in God's creation, we must understand our place in God's creation in order to love God and others well. We've got to understand our place. And the fact of the matter is, uh, most, of us, most of us in this room probably what represent about 10% of the most wealthy people in the world. So in November, I think they estimated that uh, global population clicked past 8 billion, 8 billion people, of which like over 4 billion don't know the name of Jesus, just sidebar. 8 billion people, that's a lot of people. And if your family or you individually bring in roughly, I don't know, $80,000 a year in the U.S., uh, you're in the top 10% of earners in the world, top 10% of the most wealthy people in the world. Do you know what that means? It means you're blessed more than you could probably ever understand, that we all are. But outside of that, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. In regards to those other 90%, those other billions and billions of people, you are no different in God's eyes. It doesn't matter how much money you make, the color of your skin, your gender, your ethnicity, your church attendance, how religious you are. You are one of 8 billion people made in the image of God, equal in worth and value to the other billions. Really, when we think about it, we're just like a, a vapor, a speck of dust in God's creation. And we need to think of ourselves rightly when we think about our creator. But also it's amazing because he still loves us. He still loves us. But we walk humbly by not being prideful and being, being humble. Pride says that we are better than our neighbor. Pride says that we are better than that person in church who annoys me. We are better than that person in church who comes, you know, a couple times a year. Humbleness says, no, no, they're the same as me. They're a sinner in need of a God. They're a sinner in need of a Savior. Pride creates an environment where we elevate ourselves into being our own little G gods, where we live a life of idolatry, thinking we know what is best for our lives. And pride will keep us from doing what is right. Pride will keep us from loving God and loving our neighbor. It may seem right at the moment, but pride eventually leads to ruin. And scripture tells us that God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. So a life of faith, a life that is marked by justice and mercy, begins with humble obedience to God, thinking rightly of yourself in light of God and his creation. So you ready for the bad news? Uh, these are God's requirements, and you don't measure up. Neither do I. We're not humble, we're not just, we're not merciful. We can be, uh, we can be from time to time. 
And it's awesome when we are, right? We have good relationships and things are good, um, but we're not going to get it right. Not nearly enough. And the thing about God's requirements and God's word, it's, it's not up for interpretation. It doesn't change. Right? We have a bad habit of taking the things that God requires, looking at them, taking his word and looking at it. And we're like, well, I don't really understand that. Or, well, that doesn't really line up with my view. So I'm just going to interpret it this way. Just because something is hard doesn't mean you get to skip over it or tell God that he's wrong. The bad news, we still fall under these requirements. And the even worse news is that judgment of all, judgment of all mankind is on the horizon. Paul tells us that he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Jesus, that's the man he appointed. We don't know when that day is coming, and it wouldn't matter if we did. There's nothing we could do to get ready. There's no checklist that we can check to get ready. That really is the worst news. But there's still hope, and there's still good news, and there's still Jesus, the Son of God, the one who Scripture tells us will be sitting on the judgment seat when we appear in the courtroom. So he's going to be sitting on the judgment seat for us. But the good news is that uh, Jesus can multitask, so not only is he acting as the judge, but he's also acting as your defense attorney. So when the charges are laid out against you, your defense attorney is going to stand in your place. Through his loving kindness, through his abundant mercy, he's going to take your place. He's going to say, I will take that penalty and they will take my righteousness. Uh, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a, a pretty amazing deal, right? Undeserved, unmerited, no checklist that we can do to get it. So how do we get Jesus on our defense team then? Not by doing what is right, not by acting justly or loving mercy or being humble. It's simply by faith. Faith. John 1.12 says that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. When you become a child of God through Jesus Christ, he takes your penalty. He takes the sin upon himself and he gives you his righteousness. We can never do enough to save ourselves, never. Our pride tells us that we can and we have to fight against that daily. Every day, our pride tells us, if I just do this, this, and this, I can save myself. But really, all we can do is put our faith and trust in the only one who can save us, and that is Jesus. And when we do that, when we put our faith and trust in him, then that leads us to do what is right, to do what God has shown us. It leads us to a life of humble obedience. It leads us to a life of justice, and it leads us to a life of mercy where we love God and love people well. That's what is required. Jesus is required. That's how we check the boxes. Not by anything that we can do, by accepting the gift that he has given us, by taking our sins to the cross. So I don't know where you guys are at, 
this morning in, in your walk, in your, in your life, in your faith. Um, I don't know if you are, are treading water thinking that you have to check a bunch of boxes. Um, I don't know if you've been struggling. I'm sure there's people in here that have been struggling. Part of faith in Jesus is putting our, our trust in him. And part of faith in Jesus is something we call repentance and confession. It's saying, hey, God, I know that I wasn't acting justly. I know I wasn't acting rightly, and I know I'm not humble. Lord, and I need you, and I need your forgiveness, and I need your grace. And that's not a one-time thing. That's not a sinner's prayer that saves you. That's every day because we can't get it right. So we want to be a church that prays together. Um, So we're going to go into a time of confession. A time of confession. I I want to give you a few moments to open your heart to God. To think about how you've missed the mark. The unjustness in your life. Not showing mercy and kindness. And the pride. Just open your hearts. Take a moment. Whatever posture you need to assume, just let God know that you're sorry and you need Him. That you cannot do it on your own. So take a few minutes and I will close this. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.